Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1 tells us that then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes, and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would have your way with us. We come together not to go through a service and not to just simply discharge some religious duty, but this morning, Father, we come to worship you and to hear from you. I ask now, God, that you would anoint me to preach in the power and in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit of God, not in man's wisdom, but, Father, in your power and anointing alone. We pray, Father, that You would save any amongst us this morning that have yet to know You in the free pardon of sin. God, that You would encourage Your saints to stand up for what is right, for what is true, to refuse to compromise in their lives, Lord. And God, above all, we ask that You would simply be glorified. Remind us this morning of who You are. Remind us this morning of Your power and Your strength, of the God that we serve, that we might not be dismayed, that we might not be fearful or discouraged. Father, have Your way in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach you this morning a sermon titled, A Fatal Compromise. A Fatal Compromise. One of the things that's interesting about the Word of God is that at times, it's really graphic. I mean, you, you can read of some really graphic things, not only Old Testament, but New Testament alike. We see the brutality of the cross in the New Testament. We see in the Old Testament the, the brutality of people. And one of the things that I love about the Word of God, it, it really authenticates it, is that it's just true. It just tells us what's going on. It records the failures of God's people. You know, any other book that was uh, falsely written, if it were falsely written trying to lift up its heroes, it would certainly leave out of it all of the failures of its heroes. But not so with the Word of God. God tells us everything just the way it is. And we see the, 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 the tragic failures of a lot of God's people, heroes of the faith. Uh, we see David and, and Bathsheba. We see Saul eventually uh, turning because of his pride and, and, and almost going crazy and trying to, to kill David. And 
And I could go on and on, but I want to say this morning that the Word of God records for us real events in history, and God tells it exactly how it is. It's interesting, some of the stuff, just how graphic it is. In our story, we, we have a group of God's people, the men of Jabesh Gilead. These are, these are Jewish believers in God. And they find out that their enemy has basically surrounded them. That's kind of what the word encamped about them means. And they're threatened that they're going to be taken over by their enemy. And they actually go out to Nahash, the leader of, of this, these people that want to destroy the Jews. They go to Nahash the Ammonite, and they say to him, make a deal with us. Let's make a covenant. Let's make a treaty between the two of us. Can I tell you right now this morning, when you're at a place that you're willing to make a deal with your enemy, you're on dangerous, dangerous ground. But this is the case. God's people, they go to the enemy They go to this man that's heading up a group of people to slaughter them all, and they say, let's cut a deal with you. Let's make a covenant. And here's the deal. Nahash says, let me gouge out. It actually means to scoop out, like with a spoon. Let me scoop out the right eye of every man in your city, and I'll let you live. And that's a pretty gruesome thing. That would have been an absolute, loud, terrible bloody thing to witness. But this is a real story. Can I tell you this morning, before we look too far into the story together, that everything that's recorded in the Word of God is recorded for for our understanding, that we might see it, that we might use it as an example, that we might learn from it, that we might find out, God, what is it You're trying to teach us? What is the application to my life right now today Concerning this story that happened thousands of years ago, what does it matter to me? This morning I want to show you some things that spiritually speaking are still true today about the way our enemy comes to us. First of all, we've been studying on Wednesday night, and I don't mean to be redundant for those of you that have been here listening on Wednesday night, but it's worth repeating that we have a real enemy. There is a real devil, there are real demons, there are real principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this age, and we have a very real enemy. And not only is he an enemy, but he is a ruthless one at that. I can't think of about anything more ruthless than cutting a deal that says, let me take out the eye of every man in that city and we'll let you live. That's ruthless. It will do you well, brother. It will do you well, sister, my Christian friends. When you understand our enemy does not play around, he might try to come across as somebody that's your friend. He might try to come across as somebody that if you'll just strike hands in a deal with him, he'll, he'll ease up and not put too much pain on you. He might try to come across a lot. This is how it comes across with a lot of our young people is, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of sin. There's nothing wrong with just going out and dabbling with a little of the things of the world. It's just, it's fun for a while. It's fun for a season. And he tries to make it look like if you'll join forces, if you'll come along beside of him, if you'll be his friend, it's not quite as bad as what everybody says it is. But you listen to this preacher when I tell you our enemy is absolutely ruthless. The Bible says he comes but to steal, 
kill, and destroy. And that is His mission for your life. That is His mission for your children's life. That is His mission for your family. That is His mission for your marriage. That is His mission for the church. That is the enemy's mission for every single one of us. To steal from us, to kill us, or to destroy us. We have a ruthless enemy that is out to destroy us. Now, what is the application to our lives? It's one thing to know that there's a ruthless enemy, but what is the application? The application is this. It is time that we as God's people, and some of you already are, but there's a large handful of you that have no clue. It is time that we as God's people quit toying around with sin and the things of this world that seek to destroy us and quit dabbling in both worlds with one foot in this world and one foot on this in this world. A little bit of God over here, a little bit of selfish fun over here and dabbling in the world. If you understand that the enemy has no desire but to destroy your life, you will begin to see that sin is the enemy of your soul. So long as you think that there's not anything wrong with sin, there's not anything wrong with striking a deal with the enemies of God, you'll find yourself constantly double-minded. You know, James chapter 1 says this. It says, The double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And then here's what it says. This is the Word of God I'm quoting to you. That man should expect nothing from the Lord. That's James chapter 1. You can read it for yourself. The double-minded man should expect nothing from the Lord. Now, I'm going to teach you this morning why. We're going to see why is that. But whether or not you understand why or not, you better believe the Word of God, Christian brother or sister. The double-minded man can expect nothing from God. You can be double-minded all your life and one day you're here with this group of folks and you're living a way you ought not live and you know it. And then you come up and you show up at Sunday and for about three days you're feeling pretty good. And then the weekend comes around and you're back over here with this group of folks and you pray and you pray and you pray and you wonder, why am I getting nowhere? Why is God not answering my prayers? Why do we not seem to be getting anywhere with God? I will tell you on the authority of the Word of God, the double-minded person should expect nothing. Underline the word nothing in your Bible. That's how much God has promised the double-minded. Now the answer, I, this morning I want to show you, I, I told you the, the title of my sermon is Fatal Compromise. Fatal Compromise. There is a reason that we should expect nothing. But first of all, we have an enemy. And he's ruthless. And he's out to steal, kill, and destroy for a brief moment, I want to ask the question, though, what happened to God's people? Look at our text. So Nahash encamps against Jabesh Gilead and all the men, the men, not women and children, all the men, and I like the word all, not some, not most, all, the men came out to Nahash and said, make a covenant with us, we'll serve you. What happened to these people? What happened to the leaders of the homes for these women? What happened to the fathers that should be leaders for these children? 
That when they find themselves in danger and they find the enemy is about to cave in on them, their first instinct is this. Let's just strike a deal with our enemy. We're already defeated. What happened to these people of God? They have forgotten that their backs were against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army were caving in and God simply said to Moses, you put that staff out over the water and the waters parted and they went across on dry ground and when they came out on the other side, God collapsed the walls of water back on their enemies and they watched God destroy their enemies before their very eyes. They had forgotten that they had lived for 40 years in the desert and their shoes never wore wore thin and they had manna to eat every single day and God gave them water and God sustained them. They had forgotten the power of their God. They had forgotten that their God is able to deliver. And somehow, someway, they got to a place where now they actually believe that the power of their enemy to destroy them was greater than God's power to deliver them. It's where a lot of Christians live. They won't deny that God's got power. But you look at the fear they live in, you look at the attitude they walk with, you look at their belief system, and you'll find if you really pinpoint it, they believe the enemy's power to destroy their family, to destroy their life, to destroy whatever, is more powerful than God's ability to deliver. Now this is where these men were. How do you get here? I'm talking about real stuff this morning. First of all, let me say, you can make it, okay? Our God is bigger. Our God is greater. You can make it. But I know, because I've been doing this for almost 12 years now, you can get saved. And when you get saved, it's like the whole world changes. And it does change. Believe me, when you're born again, the whole world changes. You'll know when you're born again. But there's this false thought that kind of occurs when everything's new, that you're going to feel this way forever. That you just this, that it's just always going to be this way. But I'm telling you, if you're not careful, there'll come a time when things begin to change. And you begin to doubt, and you begin to worry, and you begin to fear, and where you once would have said, I will rather die in this place fighting for my wife and children than give in to God's enemies and let them gouge out our eyes and make a mockery of us. Now you're saying that sounds like a pretty good deal. What can happen? First of all, they begin to believe in the power of the enemy. And furthermore, here's a statement I want you to really get a hold of this morning. They begin to see themselves as the enemy wants them to see themselves, rather than how God wants them to see themselves. You remember a lot the story of Elijah, and if you're familiar with your Bible, in 1 Kings chapter 18, and Elijah goes, and it's one of the greatest single-handed victories ever recorded in the Bible. Elijah's got all this faith in God. He says, you know what? You call every one of your false prophets, you get them from the entire land and you bring them, all 800 plus, and it's me versus 800. And let's just have a showdown. Me versus 800. And whoever wins, their God is God, and the other people die. Either I die or you die, that's the deal. Hey, that takes some courage. He said, my God's going to show up. And we, if you know the story, Elijah shows up. He says, you boys go first. Show me what you got. And about 800 total of these prophets of 
of Jezebel. They're chanting around the fire. They're cutting themselves, which, by the way, is a devilish practice. They're cutting themselves. They're chanting. And Elijah's just kind of sitting back saying, maybe your God just doesn't have ears that can hear. Just scream louder. And so they scream louder. Nothing happens. He said, maybe your God's tired. He's taking a nap. And he'll wake up soon. And this goes on for hours and hours and hours. And after they make fools of themselves, this brave prophet of God stands up and says, my turn. And he says a short prayer, less than 70 words. And fire falls from heaven. It licks up the altar and all the water that he has poured around it. This amazing victory is wrought. And he does this. He kept his promise and so did the prophets. They kept their promise. Every one of them was slain. He took the sword to every one of these false prophets and slaughtered them. I'm talking one of the greatest victories, single-handed victories you've ever seen. The next day, something happens that causes this brave man of God to run like a coward and spend the next several months hiding in a cave. What happened? In 1 Kings 18, the Bible tells us that Jezebel said this. She sent a messenger to Elijah, and here's what she said. She said, you tell him, as it was done to the prophets he killed, so it will be done to Elijah. And Elijah began to see himself. He, believe me, the images were fresh in his mind. He had just watched with his own eyes nearly 800 false prophets be slaughtered. He had seen it with his eyes. He knew what it looked like. It was fresh. And he began to see himself as one of them. He began to see himself as a dead man. It's amazing what your perspective of yourself will do to a man or a woman. It's unbelievable. If you think you're defeated and you think it's over, you will not have the courage to stand up and fight. That's why I said, listen to this statement. The enemy wants you to see yourself the way he sees you, not the way that God sees you. And I've got to make that conscious choice. How am I going to see myself? Am I going to look at the circumstances surrounding my life? Am I going to look at the circumstances that I'm facing today? Am I going to look at my history? Am I going to look at my past? Am I going to look at what's happened to me two years ago, 20 years ago, and allow that to define to me what I am and where I'm going? Or am I going to stand on the firm foundation that I am who God says I am, that I am His child, I am His son, or I am His daughter, that He has promised never to leave me or forsake me, that He fights for us, that He is with us, that He is for us, and if my God is for us, then who can be against us? I'm telling you, how you see yourself, how you view yourself, will determine your willingness to fight or your willingness to run. Now we see this in the eyes of Elijah. And that's what happened here to God's people. They see themselves as defeated already. I've seen people give up when they shouldn't give up. They're convinced, they're convinced we're defeated. It's over. I might as well give up. I might as well call it quits. And then they become willing to strike a deal with the enemy. I want to ask the question, where have the elders of the church gone? Where have the elders of the church gone? 
This is not necessarily a rebuke specifically on Crossway Church, but I will say this. Hey, we're the ones here listening this morning. There ain't nobody else outside those walls with cups up to it listening to what I'm saying. It's for us. So let's at least be honest enough to ask ourselves the same questions, okay? Where are the elders of the church? Where are the men? And the women, for that matter. To stand integrity in front of our children. To hold the torch and say, follow us this way. Here's where we're going. Those that have been tested and tried, they've been there. They've done that. They've been at this for a long handful of years. They've seen the enemy's tactics. They've had their own Jabez Gilead experience. And they've come out victorious. Where are the elders of the church leading the young people of this day? There is such an amazing divide, and I don't believe the divide is of God. In our particular culture, we have moved to the two-church mentality. All the old folks over here, the boring old folks that just like the traditional hymns. Quiet. And then you've got the young folks over here that everybody wants to be radical and cool and new age and all of this. And there's just a strange divide. Generally speaking, we don't have that too much here, but generally speaking, there's this weird, strange disconnect where those who should be leading our young people, who should be teaching our young people, who should be standing up, somehow they've been pushed off into a corner just to to go worship by yourselves. Have your own thing. And I'll tell you the danger of it. Because there is a danger in it. And I'm not cutting down any particular church here in Derby when I say what I'm about to say. I'm just dealing with truth. The danger of it is, listen, elders, young people need you. You leave a bunch of teenagers and 20-year-old college kids to start a church, and you'll have a church that grows with very little wisdom. We need each other. We need each other. And I'm only 31 years old. I'm telling you, we need some old, older, older. We need some older people to say, you know what? I'm not going to be intimidated by this divide that our culture tries to put. And I'm going to be somebody's. I'm going to disciple this person. I'm going to reach out to this man. I'm going to reach out to this lady. I'm going to. I'm going to step in. Because the reality is, I do know, I have been there, I have done that, and I've got something worth saying if they'll listen. I'm not just going to go off into a corner because it's the new thing that we do. Where were the elders of this church? Uh, uh, what, what happened to these men? How do you get to a place where you're not willing to fight for your own family any longer? You're not willing to stand for what is true. Can I tell you, there is still something worth fighting for. And not only is there something worth fighting for, our God is still able. His arm is not short that He cannot save. Our God is not fearful. He is not up there trembling, wondering what in the world is happening. We serve the God that had the power to speak heaven and earth into existence, to tell the stars where to go and to hang there, to tell the seas where to stop. Our God is able. He is powerful. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And as His people, we ought not cower down in fear and accept defeat for our families, for our own lives, for our children, or for the church. Now, why the right eye? 
Nahash immediately comes up with this idea on this condition. I'll make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all of Israel. There's two reasons that he wanted to put out the right eye. One of them he actually tells us, and I'll deal with that in a moment. The second one he does not tell us, but it's already, it's just common sense in this day and time. First of all, when a man's right eye is put out, it does two things. It kills his depth perception. But more importantly, it's, it's almost the same theory as cutting off a thumb and the big toes, which also happen in the Bible. Graphic stuff which would get rid of your balance and your ability to grip a sword. Cutting out the right eye would make it impossible for men to fight in any real capacity of a real war. Most men, especially those that were in the front, they had shields. And having your shield, and most people were right-handed, the average man is right-handed, he's going to hold a shield in his left hand, his sword in his right, and that shield's going to be covering that eye, and it's just you've got to get that shield off to the side, and it just wouldn't work. Men without the right eye could not fight in war. Now, I told you there's spiritual application for us today. Can I tell you, the, I know, the Bible does say the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can do any one of those three, he's happy with us. Happy with himself, let me say that. But sometimes the enemy would rather leave us alive and let us walk defeated in front of this world. Why? He tells us that all of Israel may be a reproach. You see, our enemy likes us to look like fools in the eyes of the world. Our enemy likes us to live lives that are defeated. And if these men had their right eye gouged out, not only would they no longer be able for war, but they would be able to be used as servants for the, their enemy, the Ammonites. Follow me this morning when I show you. There's a couple of places that this principle finds itself through Scripture. I'm not saying that, that, that when you find yourself in this situation that you have lost your salvation. But I am telling you, the devil can use God's people to make a mockery of God and the church. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren. I don't know about you, but hey, I don't want to be accusing my brethren of anything. That's the devil's job. Half the time, church does the devil's job for him. That's all I'll say about that. But... You remember when Jesus said, you're the, light of the, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. And here's what he said about the salt. If the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing, but, you see, it's still good for something. But, to be cast out and trod under the foot of men. You know what they used salt for often in, in those days, what Jesus is referencing, especially in the places where there was a lot of uh, when, when they would bring in fish and they would, they would lay the nets out and they would go through and get what they could, that place could become slimy. And a lot of times what they would do is throw down uh, salt that was no good because it helped with traction. We do the same thing. It's what we do in, uh, in our area when the winter comes and there's, there's ice on the road, we throw down salt. You throw down salt on your driveways, on your sidewalks. Why? Because it gives you traction. Now notice what Jesus says. When the salt has lost its savor, in other words, when the salt's no longer doing what it's meant to do, 
The only thing it's good for is to be cast down and it becomes the very traction upon which this world walks. It's the very thing that holds them up in their faulty thinking. When they see the compromised Christian willing to gouge out his own right eye rather than stand for his God. It gives the world all that more courage to stand up and say their God isn't real. Their God doesn't really change lives. Look at the way He lives. Is that what a changed life is? You see, you're becoming traction for their faulty thinking. Traction for the very foundation upon which they stand. And Nahash wanted to gouge out that right, that right eye so that they might be a reproach to all of Israel. Not only can they not fight, but now they're a reproach. Can I tell you this morning that when we compromise, the title of my sermon, Fatal Compromise, when we compromise in our convictions and when we compromise for what is right, it always, always, always costs us more than what we thought it was going to cost us. Always. You cannot deal with a cheater and expect him to treat you fair when you strike hands. It's foolishness. What would make you think these people were going to kill you, men of Jabesh Gilead? They were going to come in when you were unaware and slaughter every one of you. What makes you think you can trust them if you strike a deal with them? When we compromise, it always costs us more than what we really wanted to pay. And see, this is what the devil knows. This is why he doesn't tell you that he's really going for the kill. This is why he doesn't tell you that he's really trying to pull the rug out from underneath your feet and ruin the next month, the next year, the next ten years of your life. It's just one little compromise. It is so important that we understand that our God wants first place in our lives. There is no room for compromise on this truth. The double-minded man can expect nothing from the Lord. Thank God for God's grace. Thank God for it. But I'm telling you people, God's people, you must stand strong on what you know is true. You cannot live a compromised life. You cannot strike deals, if you will, with sin and with the enemy and, 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 and with wickedness and expect that your life for God is going to be a vibrant, healthy life. Amen. I have seen no small number of people. And I'm not mocking anybody when I say this. I'm not. God knows my heart. I'm trying to help somebody this morning. But I have seen no small number of people who just want to come to the altar and cry their eyes out because they did something horrible that week and expect everything to change and they get up and they go right back into the same pack of friends, the same situation, the exact same lifestyle and it's a never-ending cycle and they're wondering, how come I just can't get free like Pastor Joplin or Pastor Branson? How come I can't live that victorious life? And they see themselves as defeated because they don't understand. You cannot constantly comfort Compromise yourself and put yourself in positions where you're dealing with the enemy and then think that God's just going to show up every time you snap your fingers or whistle for Him to come and intervene and fix everything. 
Compromise can be fatal. And it's one of the reasons it has been said that the single greatest cause of atheism in this country is people who come into the church and profess Jesus with their mouth and then walk out the doors and deny Him with their lifestyles. If the salt has lost its savor, that's good for nothing except to be trod under the feet by men. See, compromise does matter. There is no small compromise. And I want you to know something this morning. This preacher is trying to help you. I really am. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I didn't bring, bring you here this morning to try to make you feel condemned when you leave. I'm trying to give you truth that if you'll listen to it and you'll embrace it, it'll set you free of some things. Compromise destroys us. How much compromise... Is too much. I want to answer that question this morning. In Exodus chapter 10, how many of you know the story of the plagues? Moses trying to take the people out of Israel. He goes to the goes to Pharaoh and, and says, "Let my people go." And, and Pharaoh says, "No." Well, <clears throat> finally, there's been, there's been the plagues of boils, there's been the plagues of flies, there's been the plagues of blood in the water, there's been the plague of frogs, there's been the, the, there's been the plague of locusts, there's, there's been the plague of darkness, there's all these plagues. And finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here, Moses. And there's a couple of times when Pharaoh says this. I want you women to think about how you'd feel about how Moses said, sounds like a good deal to me. Pharaoh says, just take the men, but leave back the women and children. Now remember, they were all slaves. I'm talking to you about compromise, and I'm showing you the way the enemy tries to work in our lives. They were all slaves. What would be better? I'm getting into uncharted territory here. Here's the way we handle abortion often in, in, this, in the Christian community. But what would be better? To at least save the men... And have them out and leave the women and children behind? I mean, uh, they're all, it's either all slaves or only half of them are slaves. See, compromise says, hey, let half of them go. That's better than all of them being there. That was the first compromise. Pharaoh says, just get the men out of here, leave the women and children. You see, Moses had a command from God that everything was supposed to go. And Moses says, nope, that ain't the deal. You see, God doesn't deal with the enemy. God is God alone. He doesn't strike deals. He doesn't make a covenant with the enemy. He's God. What He says goes. And that was not the deal. And Moses says, nope, no deal. We're all going. And Pharaoh says, fine. You'll see and I'll just punish you all. And God sends more plagues. And finally, Pharaoh says this. He says, you can go. Your women can go, and so can the kids. But just leave us the cattle. I wonder how many of the people of Israel were thinking to themselves, yes, we're free. 
Hey, we'll get some cattle over there. They're just cows. That's all they are. We're all free. Every last man, woman, boy, girl, every last child, every last baby, we're free. We're out of this place. I want to show you something about the way it works with God. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 26. Here is Moses' command. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a, singular, not a hoof will be left behind. Not a hoof. That's how much compromise God wants from us. Not one cattle. I don't care if we got 10 million cattle between all of us. You're not getting one single hoof, Pharaoh. Not one. Now, I want, to, I, I want to submit to you. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't tell us about every single story. And what I'm about to tell you, you won't necessarily find in the text, but I'll guarantee it because they were a murmuring people and the Bible does bear that out. There was a large portion of folks that thought, Moses, you're an idiot. He was going to let us go. And you got the audacity to tell him you're not even going to leave back a single hoof? It's not audacity. It's faith that God will do what God said He's going to do and the enemy does not dictate to us the, the grounds upon which we live. It's belief that God can do what God said He's going to do. That God is who God says He is and that I am who God says I am. It's not stubbornness. It's not being conceited. It is a grounded, rooted faith that our God is able and we will not compromise. And I don't know what would have happened, but I thank God that the man didn't compromise and he stood strong on what God had said. And we see the great deliverance of God's people soon and very shortly after the pages of this verse when he tells Pharaoh, not a single hoof are you going to get. That's the way that God asks us to live. That's the way that God asks us to work. That's the faith God asks us to walk with. Not a single hoof. Not a single hoof. I'm not giving up in this area of my life. I'm not compromising here. I'm not compromising with my eyes, my ears, my hands, my feet. I'm not compromising with my mind, my heart. 100% of me is God's. I was bought with a price and I will stand on this. I'm not going to cave in. I'm not going to accept defeat. I'm not going to let the enemy destroy my family. I'm not striking a deal with anybody. I am serving God and God alone. Not a single hoof. It's either God's way or it's not. Either God is able to deliver us or He's not. But get off of the fence. Quit living both worlds. Quit living with one foot in, one foot out. Make up your mind. It's the most miserable existence ever when you live in the fence. When you haven't decided which way you're going to go. Because you've gotten too religious for the world to really want to do anything with you. But you're still too worldly to be truly committed to God and God's not doing anything with you and you find yourself in that middle place. You're not satisfied either way. You're not happy in your, your faith with God. You're not happy in your relationship with the world and you're just double-minded. Paul said this. He said, hey, if we are only with hope in this world, then we are the most miserable man. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, talking about the resurrection and us going to heaven forever, if there's no resurrection, and he said, basically, here's what he said. I'm paraphrasing. 
But he said, if there is no resurrection and there is no true God and you're not really serving him and there really is no reward in all this thing, then why don't you just go and eat, drink and be merry? In other words, just live it up and live life how you want to live. Pick your, as, as Joshua said, choose for yourself this day, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? Is it going to be God or is it going to be yourself? Is it going to be God or is it going to be the things of this world? But quit riding the fence. Compromise will never get you anywhere. Now notice in our text, and this is one of the reasons that I find it easy to just keep going. Get back to it here. Look at verse 5. Now there was Saul. I'm going to close early this morning. Because it's time to shut it down. But now there was Saul. One man. Just one. I believe it is in Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30 where Ezekiel, speaking from God, said this, that that God looked all across the land for a man who would stand in the hedge, stand in the gap, but he could not find one. You realize Jesus turned the world upside down with 12 men. Just just 12. I don't have 12 fingers. That was 5 plus 5 plus 2. That was 12 there. Twelve men. Saul was one. He started the great nation of, uh, of the Jewish people with Abraham. One. God looked around all the world, and it, there's, as they're studying Noah's Ark right now, and, and He found one man, Noah. It's one of the things that gives me courage and strength and faith to keep going on. I know the world that we live in can be a wicked and desperate place. It's always been that way. You look at Sodom and Gomorrah. We ain't a whole lot worse than they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been a wicked and desperate place since the fall of man because sin abounds. But God has always been able to take that small remnant, that one man, that one woman. We see God use women, individual women, like in the life of Esther, to preserve His people. doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. I can stand up and I can do what's right. And I love the spirit of Saul. Saul comes up and he says, what in the world is everybody crying for? They all wept. Can I tell you, we're a contagious people. We, we are. I mean, we, we kind of like to go with the crowd. If everybody's sad, let's be sad. If everybody's happy, let's be happy. And everybody's crying. And one man says, what in the world are you all crying about? The Bible says the Spirit of God came on him and anger rose up in him. He was angry to see that his brothers and sisters were sitting around crying when instead they should have been preparing for war. But you read the next six, seven verses and you find out that this one man, willing to believe God was able, sent out encouragement across to, to the people. The Bible says the fear of God came on all of them and with one accord they come out 
and they end up all coming together. And where they were crying days earlier, now they come together in unity and they slaughter the Ammonites. There is no more Nahash after Saul and the Spirit of God in him rises up. And he says, it is time that we do something about this. And I tell you that it just takes one. That's really all it takes. A lot of times in marriages that are falling apart, if there's just one that will get angry enough, and, and hear me right, I'm talking about not angry at you, but angry at the devil. That's what I'm talking about. Angry at you says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, slice it off. Angry at the devil says, I'm going to do what Saul does here. It's time I just maybe push back a couple plates. And I'm going to fast about this, I'm going to pray about this, and I'm going to be the hands of God to you and the feet of God to you and the love of God to you, and I'm, and I'm going to do everything I can to fight for this with every ounce that I've got inside me. And it is amazing when one man, one woman is willing to say, you know what, I'm going to fight for my family. Enough is enough. Enough sitting around and crying about how it's so terrible and we're just going to be destroyed. Somebody stand up and realize your God is bigger than this. His ability to deliver is greater than the enemy's ability to destroy you. He is still the same God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We just need some men and women of God who are willing to stand up for their families, Fight for what is right. Stand up for the church and fight for what is right. Be men and women who live what we say we are. Men and women of integrity who are stirred enough to say, our God's able. Our God is able. And He is able. He is able. You read the story and you find out they win. Our God always wins. Sometimes His people lose, but it ain't His fault. It's when we normally try to fight without Him. It's when we take matters into our own hands. It's when we compromise and strike deals. But you'll never read a story from the beginning to the end of this book of God's people standing in their faith and waiting on their God to deliver them. You'll never read a story of them losing a single battle. I don't know what you're facing this morning. But I want you to know this. God is able. He is. It might be a family issue. Listen, God's able to fix your family. It might be a personal issue. And you might be thinking, I failed so miserably. I'm such a terrible person. You, you may have been running for God for 20 years. Don't listen to the devil this morning try to tell you you're too far for God to reach you and that God could never do something great in your life. Yes, He can. Yes, He can. I'm telling you, we underestimate the power of the cross. We underestimate. He was willing to go there and bleed and die for us. And believe me, He fought for our souls on that cross. And if you're a child of His this morning... Don't think that He's fighting for you any less than He fought for you on that cross. He loves you. You're His son. You're His daughter. No matter what you're facing this morning, it's not too far for God to intervene. The devil just wants you to see it that way so that you don't try. You see, the devil, basically, this is the way the devil works. He gave him two options in our story. Option number one, death. Option number two, live without an eye. You see, the devil wants you to get focused on those who are your options. Those aren't your options. 
Why don't you take option number one and stomp the devil's head underneath of your foot and stand on the authority that you are a child of God. He don't want you to see that option. But it's there. And it's the option your God wants you to see. I'll ask our worship team to come this morning as we prepare for a time of invitation. This morning I've primarily preached to the Christian brother or sister. But you might be here this morning and you've never really given your heart to God. You've never really made Jesus your Lord. You've never really served Him. Maybe you believe in God. Maybe you believe that He's real. You wouldn't have even wasted your time showing up to church this morning. But you've never really turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And this morning, if this was the last sermon you ever heard, and today was the day that you stood before God, if you're honest with yourself, you'd say, Preacher, I don't even know. I don't even... I don't believe that I'd go to heaven. I don't believe that I'm saved. I want to encourage you this morning when we give you the invitation to get up out of your seat and come and kneel at an altar. Get a hold of me. Get a hold of Branson right up here in this white shirt. We'll pray with you. We'll make sure that that you make things right with God. But maybe this morning as I really preach, I'm preaching to, to my brothers, my sisters. God's dealing with some areas in your life that you have got to, you have to quit compromising. It's more fatal than you think. You can't fight without both eyes. You can't fight with your hands tied behind your back. You can't fight with one hand pledging deals with sin, the temptations of this world. This morning you might just need to fall before God and say, God, it stops today. Enough is enough. No more compromise in our lives. Whatever it takes to get it right, whatever it takes to do it right, whatever it takes, God, today it starts now. That's God's will for you, child of God. He wants to be on your side. He wants to fight for you. But the double-minded man can expect nothing from the Lord. Make up your mind. No more double-mindedness. No more compromise. God, my heart is yours. My mind is yours. My hands are yours. My feet are yours. Everything I am, Lord, is yours. And I don't know how we're going to fight this fight. I don't know how we're going to destroy Nahash and all the Ammonites. But I know this. You're able. And all I'm going to do is stand in my integrity quit playing this compromise game and I'm going to watch you deliver me once again. Father, I pray that you'd move all across this room. Minister to hearts, Father. God, I pray that you'd encourage your people this morning. Help us to see, God, the need. As as Paul told Timothy, to preach the Word, to be instant in season and out of season, to exhort, but also to reprove and rebuke. God, that there is a time, Lord, when you've got to remind us that we've got to stop and we've got to get serious and we've got to check our hearts and we've got to get every area of compromise out and stand strong in our faith that You are God and You're able to handle these things. Lord, I pray that You give encouragement right now to that heart, Father, that they've been ready to throw in the towel and give up. They've been ready to, to concede defeat. They've already seen themselves, as Elijah did, defeated, just waiting for death. Oh, God, let them see You're bigger than that. And that that idea, that mentality is stripping them of their joy. It's stripping them of their peace. It's stripping them of their faith, their very faith in You. Oh God, this morning, let them run to You. Get their eyes focused on You and You alone.